Hey there, and welcome to Vet Club. This is going to be another edition of Journal Club, um, our second ever student journal club, which is I don't know, pretty exciting, I think. Um, and so I'm excited to welcome two new guests to the show today. So I have Brittany Boytnot and Haley Hickson. Welcome to both of you, Brittany and Haley. Thank you. Oh, thank you. You are both rising fourth years. Um, so you have just in the last few minutes become fourth year vet students here um, at Virginia Maryland College of Veterinary Medicine. And um, so you both volunteered for today's journal club. Thank you. Super excited that you both volunteered. Now you guys didn't volunteer together. You guys independently each yeah. said, this is a day that works for me. Yeah. Um, so that was, that was cool. I love that. You guys were like, yeah, that's the day that works. Yeah. Um, so you guys didn't have like some, you know, plan or conspiracy that you were going to come on and it no. just kind of worked out that it way. It just kind of worked out. Yep. I like it. Um, <laughs> but we, we did come up with a plan. So we're actually going to cover two articles today. And you guys each had an, you, you read them both, but you each had an article that was kind of yours. And I actually don't remember who did what. Um, so I'm going to let you guys, uh, you guys are each going to introduce the articles that you did. So if you guys can just give me the title and, uh, you know, maybe like the first author, um, don't worry about pronunciations um, and uh, do your best. And then we'll kind of go through the plan. But um, Haley, do you want to start? Tell us what your article was. Sure. So mine was the prospective study. Mm -hmm. And so the title of the article is Continuous Infusion of Ketamine and Lidocaine, either with or without meropotent as an adjuvant agent for analgesia in female dogs undergoing mastectomy. It's a mouthful. It is a mouthful. Um, so this report comes from Priscilla Soares et al. And it comes from a study that was done out of Brazil. Mm -hmm. And so just to give a little a synopsis of what the paper kind of discussed, um, so for those who aren't familiar with mastectomies, um, it's a procedure that is done in veterinary medicine to remove the mammary glands of cats or dogs that have, uh, well, cats or dogs in relation to what we're discussing today, um, who have uh, tumors somewhere along their mammary chain. And so um, the authors note that this type of procedure in particular uh, induces an exacerbated inflammatory response. And they propose that part of this might be attributable to kind of a failure of our current analgesal techniques to appropriately manage these patients' pain. Yeah, it hurts a lot mm -hmm. to have a radical mastectomy. Yeah, I, out. I, I would imagine so. Yeah, I, removing a lot of tissue mm -hmm. and because they're usually being um, removed for cancer, mm -hmm. you want to remove all of the tissue, um, which means it's harder to sew things back together. There's a lot of a lot of space to, to fill in. And so there is a lot of tension on these guys. So yeah, I mean, I, I certainly am, can concur that they tend to be um, more uncomfortable than maybe if you just had an incision, right? If you weren't removing such a large amount of tissue. So yeah, it's a cool, um, uh, case type to choose for this. Mm -hmm. I've seen one of these procedures done and it was a bilateral mastectomy <sighs> and it does having not undergone the procedure, um, or had yeah. other seeing that one case, it does look pretty uncomfortable. Actually, uh, <laughs> most surgeons won't do bilateral. Like, uh, was it a total bilateral? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Most surgeons don't do those anymore. They'll stage them. They'll do mm -hmm. one side, then the other because of how much tissue you have to move, uh, remove. And then they have a high rate of dehiscence. If you remove both sides at once, Got um, it, it so. was a shelter setting. So maybe that played into, yeah, it you do too. the best you can. Yeah. You yeah. can't always afford to do a second procedure. Um, mm -hmm. so you can, but most places will recommend staging them, um, if possible for that, but, um, awesome. Well, let's hold on that right now. We'll okay. get back to um we'll get back to the more details on the, the prospective study um but Brittany what was your article yeah so mine was a um less complicated title <laughs> <laughs> but it, arguably maybe more complicated article yes um it's evaluating the anti-inflammatory and analgesic properties of meropodent or serenia as we commonly know it a systemic review and meta-analysis so basically this paper um went on various just scholar websites, PubMed, I think it, it was another mm -hmm. one. And they just kind of looked for research articles that had um, done stuff on meropodent or serenia or anything such as that. They used a, 
keywords. Mm -hmm. And then they divided those out and they found which they qualified as statistically significant or Mm -hmm. qualified or whatever. They had various parameters Mm -hmm. and they looked at the results of those. And so they are basically looking at if meropidic could be used as an anti-inflammatory for um, pain medication and as also for um, analgesia and then also for um, anesthetic protocol. So basically in this article, which I don't know if you want us to get to the results or whatever, they basically found that the most common use of it would be and the best use of it would be to lower the MAC of anahelic acids. Yeah. So that's kind of what they found. So yeah. yeah. So some of you are listening right now. You're like, wait, meropitant, serenia, isn't that the vomiting drug? Isn't that? Yeah. And yeah. Um, if you're listening and you're like me, the first time somebody said serenia and anti-inflammatory or something, you were like, uh, I think you might be getting confused. And so um, this got mentioned um, to me. I don't remember who mentioned it to me on clinics um, several months ago. And I was like, mm, I'm not really sure. So I was like, let's look into it. And so started kind of digging to say what, what's what's going on with this. So that's kind of what prompted me <laughs> to, to choose these articles um, because I think it's one of those interesting things. We have a drug that um, we are familiar with. We use it routinely as an anti-emetic um, and it's very, very good at preventing vomiting. Uh, and then other people are like, but maybe it can be used for all sorts of other stuff, which always, I'll be honest, makes me skeptical um, because nothing is, you know, a panacea. Um, and so I'm like, well, all right. So... These two articles, very different types of articles. Um, One, um, as you said, Brittany, is a systematic review, and they tried to do a bit of a meta-analysis with it as well. And then the other one, which came out incidentally, um, was published after the review article. Um, But that is, a, uh, as as you said, Haley, a prospective study. Um, So uh, very different approaches uh, to these these research articles. And um, and as we'll probably discuss, maybe some different answers for how we would do things. So um, let's go back. Let's start with the review article. Um, so Brittany, if you want to, you know, what's, what's your comfort level with like review articles? How did you, are you like, yeah, I totally understand how, rev- how this process works or no. Or you're like, this was all very new to me. Okay. So I kind of get review articles. What I get bogged down and mm-hmm. I'm sure many people do is in the statistics oh, because sure. when they start going into like, oh, we did a forest plot versus a, this plot. I'm yeah. like, I have no idea what you're mean. Like, yeah. I don't know the yeah. difference of that. So I actually texted one of my friends that does research <laughs> nice. and I was like, remind me what P values are. Remind yeah. me what this is again. And so I got a little bit more comfortable with it. Good. Um, I do generally, I've read more review articles. I haven't done many journal clubs, but um, most of the journal clubs I have done, they do review articles. Mm -hmm. And so I do like that they combine many different studies. Yeah. I find that very useful because you're getting a better sample. Yeah. Set. Somebody so else has done a lot of the legwork yeah, for you. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> that's, way, so that's wonderful. It's really nice. It's like, yeah. you know, yeah. <laughs> they're like, here, here's everything. That here's, we did like months and months of lots and lots of work. Even just like reading about the work they do. Yeah. You're like, whoo, I'm exhausted. And they're like, and you can now read it in 20 minutes. Yeah. <laughs> like, like that's a super yeah. helpful thing. Um, so, okay. So they're doing this review and yes, it's easy to get bogged down with the stats and kudos to you for saying like, I don't know what this means. Let me figure it out. And so phone a friend is lovely. I love Google for these kinds of things. Like if, if there's a statistical test and I don't know it, I'm like, let me Google that. Um, and it will, you know, it's not going to turn me into a statistician obviously, but if I can be like, okay, this, I think I have a better understanding of what they're saying. Um, and then over time, as you practice these kinds of things, you're like, all right, I actually recognize that one. I remember that from last time. Mm -hmm. So, but it's normal. And I still have to do that. I still have to Google like, wait, what is, um, ah, crap. Okay. Bland Altman is what again, or Kaplan-Meier curves. How am I supposed to interpret those? Um, and wait, wait, you can use a Kaplan-Meier survival curve. Nothing died in this one. And you can start to see how they, um, how they can use different statistical tests um, to answer various questions. Now, it is challenging if you're Googling it and you're like, I don't know what this is, to critically evaluate that, right? Because you're like, well, I'm not a statistical expert, so I'm kind of going to trust them. And that's okay. Uh, I, I think that that's okay when you're reading these articles is, is to be like, well, I'm going to trust you, or that's not a part of the article that I am qualified to critique. Um but you can sometimes like look up an, uh, a statistical test and be like, I don't know if that makes sense um, for what they were talking about. Like, why are they doing correlation? What we really are looking for is causality or, you know, who knows? Um, or at least understand whether or not the claims they're making seem appropriate. Um, so good job looking things up as you went. Um, but can you give me just an overview of like, what was their process for searching the literature and how did they get down to, I think it was 14 articles ultimately that they included. How did they get from infinity to 14? Yeah. So they, it started at, 
532. That's a lot. Which is a lot. Mm -hmm. And so they did various things by looking at, um, they basically scored them by 10 criteria, which Mm -hmm. let me pull up the 10 criteria. Yeah. Where were they at? Um, So basically the 10 criteria, why I try to find it. As far as for what they were. Yeah. yeah. So they were looking at like, were the animals of the same sex, same age? Did mm-hmm. the study justify the sample size? Um, was there randomization? Um, was there blinding? Mm-hmm. Assessment of outcomes? Um, housing or other treatments? Blah, blah, blah. Where there are experimental animals? Um, did the study comply with relevant welfare regulations? Mm-hmm. And did authors include a statement on potential conflicts of interest? Sure. And then they rated these on a score of less than four, poor, moderate four to five and good six to seven are very good eight to 10. And mm-hmm. so they went from there. And then from there, they did like statistical analysis, mm-hmm. which is in the results section of basically looking at is there, was there a risk of bias? Like mm-hmm. were there um, results actually statistically significant? Mm-hmm. And um, they tried to figure out if there was um, favoring one way or another. And yep. they did include that in their res- like in their discussion, which I really appreciated is they're like, mm-hmm. Oh, for some reason, like a lot of the studies favored like that Meropitan was going to mm-hmm. provide analgesia or didn't provide analgesia, which yeah. I really appreciated. Yeah. So I think, I mean, it's pretty uh, typical process. Um, the details can vary from paper to paper, but yeah, essentially you're trying to funnel down from all the papers that mention, you know, the drug you're interested in or something like that. And then weed out the ones that okay, that's not really at all addressing the question we have. And you try to get down to that. And then once you have the articles you plan to include is to grade them or score them. And there's different scoring mechanisms to say, like, you know, depending on what you're looking for. Um, But it does ultimately, what is your question? You know, what is the question you're trying to answer? And then the other thing they did, um, so that was the um, systematic review part was to be like, okay, just what's out there. Let's just, you know, funnel it down and see what's out there. But then a meta analysis, do you guys have a sense for what a meta analysis is and how it's different from a systematic review? I'm going to be honest. I do not. Yeah. And that's okay. That's why I'm asking because it's tricky. It's a, it's a weird thing to kind of wrap your brain around. So the review is just like, here's what's out there. Let me describe it for you. A meta analysis typically is when they're trying to take studies that were done in different locations at different times and actually combine their results to increase the power, right? So if you do a study on 10 dogs and somebody else does a study on 10 dogs and somebody else does a study on 10, blah, 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 on and on. Next thing you know, if you guys all put your results together, you now have a hundred dogs, which is a bigger study than any of you could probably afford individually. Um, and, and, and depending on how that's done, there's, again, I don't do this specifically, but there are ways that you can say there's enough similarities here that I can actually combine some of these numbers to increase the power of the results that we're finding collectively. Um, so that's what they try to do. That's obviously harder because you now have, you know, 10 different studies with 10 different animals and they all have slightly different issues. Mm -hmm. Um, but usually when you're talking about a meta analysis, we're actually in some ways trying to combine the results from multiple studies to answer a question with, um, I guess a little more confidence in those results one way or the other. So that was the other part that they were, they were trying to do by combining things, obvious limitations with doing that, but that's, um, there's some big advantages too, right? Like you've got, you know, spanning years in different, different hospitals. Um, and it also means that can you, um, is that more, um, a- applicable, right? So if you have one institution has these results, but nobody else has them, you have to start wondering, is there something unique about this? Is there some confounding factor they don't know about? Or is there something unique about whatever disease they're studying there that's different from other, you know? Um, but if you can say, hey, across all these different studies, we're finding these same results, you know, good, bad, or indifferent, like that's meaningful stuff. So that's usually what you're you're trying to accomplish with a meta-analysis. So it's taking that review that one step further, um, which again, um, they, they tried to do here. And so the that figure three, you kind of alluded to it just a bit ago, Brittany, where they say, which side of this, you know, if we said the line down the middle is neutral, and if the results are skewing toward the left of this, that means um, there was a negative effect, and to the right of it, there was a positive effect. And if you look at those, um, there is a lot of it is just looking right down the middle there. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, so we can talk about, you know, some of the skewing um, results. But if you were going to sum up, the review article with, so that you said there were three things they looked at, the effects of um, meropitant on analgesia, anti-inflammatory, and um, uh, minimum alveolar concentration of the inhalant anesthetic you need, or MAC. Um, what were the three take-home points, would you say? The three take-home points were that they did prove in a lot of the studies, and they said it was statistically significant that the, you it is anesthetic sparing, meaning yeah. that the MAC was actually lower. Mm-hmm. 
The anti-inflammatory properties, um, they did state in there that most of the studies that they looked at would monitor them by um, the amount of like actually like leukotrienes and like cells types. So that mm-hmm. could be the reason why, but there was no effect on that. Yeah. And then the same with analgesia. They said that for some analgesia, it actually worked, but for others, it didn't thinking that for continuous pain, which is the most Mm -hmm. important for us, um, it's not really that effective is what I would sum it up as. So basically what I got from it is that it's very good at anesthetic sparing. They use that Mm -hmm. a lot. um, And that's what it should be used for. And that Mm -hmm. more research needs to be done on its actual Mm -hmm. effects on pain and stuff like that. Because they in the article, I found it interesting. They brought up that, you know, the MAC is lower, like you need less MAC and like that could be related to pain, but then here it's not. So it's like, they're like, yeah. we don't know, mm-hmm. yep. which happens a lot in research articles. So It does. It <laughs> yeah. does. Yeah. No, I think that's a perfect summary. So basically based on what they found in the articles they included, they said, yeah, um, really can't justify calling this anti-inflammatory. Can't really justify calling it analgesic for, you know, to but it does seem to, um, from a mild to moderate, depending, there was a range, I think, on yeah. how how much it would reduce MAC. I think it was somewhere between 8 and 33%. Yeah, so 8% is percent. maybe less impressive. Yeah. 33% is pretty good. Yeah. Um, but that was fairly consistent across a number of studies. So um, reduction in MAC is is a in, in interesting, you know, side effect. Um, and I would call it a side effect, maybe not an adverse side effect, but a side effect of Serenia. Um, so yeah, I think that's a, the perfect summary. Um, so you read that review article and you're like, okay, I'm probably not going to be using Serenia for analgesia or for anti-inflammatory. Um, cool. All right. Hold that thought. Haley, that's your turn. All right. So, and we'll come back to you, Brittany. Don't worry. You're not off the hook, but um, so Haley, this is where your article comes in. So, um, you know, one of the things that always happens at the end of a review article or a meta-analysis is that more studies are needed. Mm-hmm. Um, and fortunately we have, you know, groups that keep doing research. And so here's one of the more studies needed. Now, chances are this study had been started or maybe even completed um, by the time the review was done, but it wasn't published. So they didn't know about it. Um, so give us a, a, the summary of maybe just a brief rundown of what they did, um, you know, how they conducted their study and then, um, you know, what they found and what what your thoughts were. Got it. So the authors note that one of the normal techniques that's used for this type of procedure um, as part of the analgesic protocol is providing an intermittent uh, bolus of uh, ketamine and lidocaine and Mm -hmm. then having a continuous rate infusion while under anesthesia of that. And so you mean starting with a bolus and then go following with a CRI? Yes. Yep, yes gotcha. Thank okay. you. Yep. And so the authors wanted to compare two groups of dogs and see how analgesia holds up when you have a group that's just getting ketamine and lidocaine versus another group that's getting ketamine, lidocaine, and meropitin. Yep. And so um, what they did is they had 24 female dogs that enrolled. Mm -hmm. And this was from their veterinary hospital of the State University of Santa Cruz in Brazil. Mm -hmm. And they had a set uh, inclusion criteria. I don't know if you'd like me to go into what those were. Um, So this is directly from their text. They wanted docile animals, normal laboratory test results, eligibility for surgical anesthetic procedure based on EKG results. They had to have no pulmonary metastases. They had to be an ASA classification of one or two for their surgical and anesthetic risk. And um, older animals with mild compensated cardiomyopathy uh, could also be enrolled as well, which I thought was an interesting inclusion. Um, They're probably, yeah, you have to think about who's getting mastectomies. And if you exclude every patient that has like something, you know, mm-hmm. you're just like, we're not going to get any animals included. <laughs> um, so, and you, and again, you want to um, extrapolate that to a population that's useful. And those yeah. are going to be patients that are getting mastectomies. So I think that's fair. Yep. And so um, for the, some of the setup that they did, um, these animals, they had um, a multi-parameter analysis placed, and that was to gather uh, various parameters like temperature, heart rate, blood pressure. Mm-hmm. So they gathered that pre-op, mm-hmm. and then patients were pre-medicated with morphine um, at a 0.5 mg per kg IM dose. Um, that got, they were marinated for 15 minutes with after that injection. And then after that, they started the actual anesthetic protocol, which was very typical of what at least I've seen surgically Mm -hmm. five minutes of oxygenation. Um, They started them on um, LRS fluids, which got me thinking back to our fluid lectures. Um, After IV catheters were placed, uh, they were um, pressure controlled, mechanical ventilation was delivered. And um, following that, that was more of a constant across the group. Yeah. So that was the same no matter which group you're in. Yeah. And so the two groups, um, 
they had two treatment groups, um, 12 each, and those two were separated based on a lottery. I don't know what that lottery entails, but they Just were randomized. Yeah, they, there's all sorts of really fancy ways that you can randomize <laughs> your patients. You can rip up numbers and put them in envelopes and have people just draw. Yeah, it's usually, sometimes it's a computer program, but it's just, yeah. And so they had their groups, as we mentioned, GLK in their, in their paper designated the group that just received lidocaine and ketamine, and GLKM was the group that also got meropitin. So the amount of lidocaine and ketamine delivered was kept constant across, across the groups, but mm-hmm. of course the meropitin varied um, for yep. the group that got it. Well, the 12 animals within that got the same amount, but the yep. original group did not. And so uh, the authors also noted that the procedures were performed um, in a standardized manner and it was by unexperienced surgeon, which I took to mean one surgeon, but I wasn't sure if that was... Yeah, an experienced surgeon. So basically, we're trying to eliminate the confounders. So we're, anything that we can control, we're going to try to do the same and, and have the serenia be the one thing that's different. So it's the same surgeon using the same approach and, you know, trying to just say, oh, well, yeah, of course, the, you know, the, the junior surgeon who hasn't done this very much, of mm-hmm. course, that patient's, you know, their tissue handling is not going to be as good, blah, blah, blah. But if you have it um, as consistent as possible, you try to uh, reduce those confounders. Um, yeah. And so they collected their physiologic parameters, so anesthetic monitoring times Mm -hmm. at seven different time points, which were designated M0 to M6. Mm -hmm. And then um, more importantly, I think for this study is the levels of analgesia and sedation, those specific parameters were gathered at six different time points as well. I can go into specifics about what those specific time points yeah, are Yeah, I think that's the relevant stuff right there. The time points throughout the procedure is cool. And I like that they they did it not based on time, but based on when these certain landmarks at the procedure had happened. Mm-hmm. But the the pain stuff is what I found was most important. So when, yeah, when were they assessing these dogs' pain? So to note too, they mentioned that the evaluator who was actually looking at these, um, they were unaware of which dog was in which group. And so uh, group T1 was the, or time T1 was when the CRI was terminated. Uh, T2 was one hour after termination of the CRI. T3, two hours after termination of the CRI. And then it goes down till T6, which I always just remembered it's one less than whatever the T6 time is. So yeah. five hours after the cessation yeah. of CRI. Yeah. And specifically, they used four different pain scales. And I think this is important to note because <laughs> when you get to the results section, yeah. uh, a simple descriptive scale, visual, interactive, and dynamic analog scale, which they use the acronym DIVAS throughout the paper for, uh, numerical classification scale or NCS, and then the short form Glasgow uh, composite pain scale, which yeah. they designated GCPS-SF. Most of the time. Yeah. Occasionally they change the name of that one. <laughs> yeah, I saw that too. And, <laughs> and I, I had like, to, uh, yeah, <laughs> I had to do some Googling. It's for a some lot of, of acronyms. acronyms. It's a lot of acronyms for sure. Um, so uh, first off, I want to ask your thoughts. Um, you know, what are your thoughts on choosing those time points for doing pain scales in these dogs? You know, I think it, in my personal opinion, I would have tried to draw it out a little bit more. Okay. And something I read online too, particularly about the modified Glasgow, is that you really shouldn't start recording that until about two hours post-op. And the source that um, I read that from claim that that's because at least two hours post-op, you kind of expect that some of the analgesic quote-unquote effects are because the animals are still They're still kind of drowsy. Yeah. yeah. And so, you know, when I read that, then that made me think that T1 to T3, maybe they're- Take it with a grain of salt. Yeah. um, Just because these animals, and I've seen some pets who take a really long time to recover. Yeah. yeah. And so I think it'd be hard to, thinking back to those animals, gauge whether they were painful or not, because I think mentally they don't even know what's going on yet still. just to clarify, so we started measuring their pain scales after we stopped the CRI. Yes. Why did we do it that way? So they justified, my impression was based on their, so they said that lidocaine and ketamine last about six hours. Um, and I'm, I was thinking they meant half-lives. Um, I reviewed plums for meropotence half-life, which mm-hmm. was about eight hours, which the authors noted as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they decided to go with up to the, right before the six hour mark, mm-hmm. uh, just because they wanted the medications to still be having an effect. That was yeah, my Yeah, that's my beef. That's okay. my beef with this one. <laughs> okay, so, all right. So here's the thing. So when we started with the CRIs, what did they start with? 
we, you already said it. You, they started with a bolus, right? Yes. yes. So they got a bolus. And so that gets the, you know, drug levels up into ideally into the therapeutic range. And then the CRI is just to maintain it there. Mm-hmm. Um, but when you stop the CRI, you're not, I don't, I don't know that it's necessarily going to last six or eight more hours, mm-hmm. right? That's why we keep it on a CRI is because I want to maintain that. So, um, yeah, it's a little bit, it was kind of an odd choice for me. Like I wanted to know what was their pain score on the CRI. Cause like, that's how I'm going to manage a mastectomy post-op. Like I'm not going to stop their pain management. Mm-hmm. I'm going to continue it. Um, and so I, I just, I was a little confused, um, by giving it as a CRI, which the point of doing the CRI is to maintain the analgesia where you want it. Um, and then tell me, tell me how it's doing. Like, that's what I want to know. Like while it's getting the lidocaine, ketamine and serenia, like how is that working? Then if you want to continue it after you've stopped it, that's fine. But like, well, when I've stopped the drugs is when I'm less Im- impressed. Like, of course it's going to, they're going to get more painful over time. Um, and yeah, I don't know. I guess I'm, I'm, if you were going to do that study, I would want to see concurrent pharmacokinetics and dynamics. Like what's the drug levels? Like, that's what I want to see because I'm curious, like, oh, how long is this going to last? But the question for me was not how long will this last after you stop the CRI? It's what difference does it make while you're giving it was sort of, I, I just, it, I just, was confused honestly um by why they were we we're checking that after they stopped it i was like i want to know why while you're giving it that's what i'm interested like should i give serenia as part of my analgesic plan and that wasn't the question they answered um, they answered so i thought that was kind of weird and i didn't really fully from my reading of the paper didn't get a good explanation for why that was the choice they made i understand like okay these are the predicted half-lives but like but you know we don't, that's why we don't give it intermittently. We just give it as a CRI so we don't have to worry about the half-life. Anyway, okay, that's my beef there. Please continue. <laughs> I think that's a good per, uh, point to note, um, actually, because I didn't really think of it like that when I was going through. Um, but after, you know, listening to you discuss that and, you know, knowing that the CRIs were ceased and then that's when they were gathering their analgesic uh, data, Yeah. Um, you know, just understanding too with different animals 24 different animals pharmacokinetics mm-hmm. can differ animal yep. to animal too yep. and so if you don't have any data reflecting therapeutic levels or plasma levels or things yeah. like that to kind of rule out some of those potential confounders yep um that's a very good point to note um yeah. which i somehow missed when i was going through that's okay yeah i miss things all the time when i read these articles yeah, I, th- so. I'm, I think i'm going to blame part of that is i haven't really worked with a lot of cri's in the clinic yet Fair. and so yeah um i'm excited to do that once uh we start on clinics uh, i did think that was cool in. that they gave the serenity as a cri i really like that i think it was 100 mics per kick per minute was what they were doing which was mm-hmm. fun i was like okay cool <laughs> um not sure i'm needing it yet but one day file that one away um <laughs> Okay, so they they did the the pain scales, four different pain scales. Yes, which is I think that was cool that they did four different ones to kind of see. Um, and so they did that for the twenty four dogs in the different groups. Mm-hmm. All right, then what? And so they also used, and this one I had to look more into, nociceptive mechanical threshold oh, yeah. using a digital cool. analgesimeter. I don't know if yeah, that sounds right. I don't know super much. Anal- I don't know how you pronounce analgesimeter. <laughs> I like that. Um, yeah. But I hadn't heard that one before, so I had to yeah. look more into that. Okay, cool. What'd you learn? I learned that the quote unquote mechanical nociceptive threshold. It's the minimum pressure that induces a pain response. Yeah. And so, I don't know specifically how this machine is run or used. I have not seen. Yeah, it. the nociception stuff is actually really cool when you're talking about pain medications. So we have analgesia, which when we use to general term to just reduce your experience of pain. But nociception is um, is a little bit more of a technical term, and we're saying, did you perceive this noxious stimulus? Is kind of my very simple way of explaining that. But like, are you feeling pain, or did you feel this noxious stimulus? Right? Because if I can ask you, are you feeling pain, and you're like, yeah, you know my back's kind of sore or this and that versus if I say I'm going to apply this very consistent noxious stimulus and there are thermal nociceptor, there are chemical nociceptors um, and pressure nociceptors because um, you have those different receptors in your in your body. Um, and so they can say, okay, we're going to put this thing on and it's going to deliver the exact same amount of pressure or temperature or whatever it's going to be. And we're going to, that way we can have a baseline. So, because we all know how subjective, um, pain, I mean, pain is all experienced in your head, right? And so when you're doing anti-nociceptive 
studies to try to control that a little bit better. They've created these um, different tools to say, okay, I'm going to take this group of dogs and I'm going to apply a, a, a mild but a noxious stimulus and I want to see what their response is. This is this animal's baseline. So it's like if I give you a mild shock or if I, you know, pinch your arm or something, you're like, well, that was annoying. I'm okay. It was annoying. And then you're going to have a certain response. And then later I'm going to give you a, a you know, pain medication or something to try to block that. And I'm going to see what your response is so that you get to serve as your own control is kind of the idea, but I'm doing the same stimulus each time versus like the, the confounder we'd already mentioned before. If you have one surgeon who knows what they're doing and one doesn't, or maybe one surgeon who's a little sleepy today and isn't as gentle with the tissue handling, who knows? There's other confounders. This is, is meant to try to eliminate those confounders or at least reduce them quite a bit. So when you see anti-nociception or nociceptive effects, you're usually talking about something a little bit more controlled than what we're talking about analgesia. So I, I love that they did this. Now that particular contraption they used, I, I don't know, I'm not familiar with <laughs> it. Um, but I imagine it's something that, you know, you place on like that you, you'll, they'll mention like in your, um, in your review yeah. article and some of the rat studies, they talked about like tail flick or, you know, cause they'll do thermal, um, nociception and things like that. So those are, are really well studied in, in, in rats and mice and other rodents where they're looking at anti-nociception. So they say, this is this predictable noxious stimulus we're going to apply. And what's the response we expect. And we kind of usually do it more than once you do it a few times, see what their baseline is, and then apply some sort of prevention. So my question for that is when they say, you said like the baseline, so do they do this for the animal before and then after the pain medication? Yeah. How would you do that yes. in surgery? Cause each animal's simulation. So that would be a, yeah. yeah. And, and it's a very, very good question because if you've had surgery, that might actually affect how you perceive a different pain stimulus, right? Like if you have wind up or something else that you might actually respond very differently to, um, to that, um, that new stimulus. But if you say your baseline for this particular anti-nociceptive process or the nociception is established after the surgery, right? So maybe you say, so do you remember Haley, how, when did they, um, when did they do the nociceptive stimuli? I actually don't remember if they did it before yeah, or after surgery either. I can look for that. Um, but what you would have to do is you would either do it before and after surgery before, but like you can't withhold pain meds from these guys. Yeah. So that is a confounder. Um, so presumably they did that pre-op, um, established a baseline. However, what you could do is at least compare time T1, T2, T3, T4, T5, T6, um, and to say, you know, how is that? At least to have something a little bit more consistent to compare over time, but because that is different than you, usually when you're doing those studies, you're not also doing surgery. Um, so they were trying to do something to, to provide a little bit more control, whether or not that's going to be effective in this type of design is, is a, a good question. Um, it's okay if you don't remember. And I'm looking, it looks like they were well, going off a of figure four. They did yeah. it at T1 through T6. So yeah, it looks so like all they, post-operatively. Yeah. It looks like okay. they did it at the same time. Assessment Which is fair because again, if you do it before surgery, you can't really use that as your baseline because again, a lot has changed. Yeah. The dogs are on drugs, different things. So they were basically using it to, to um, help kind of control for confounders in that T1 through T6 time period. And so I think just the last points to note for other things that they did for their methods is rescue analgesia. Mm -hmm. um, they gave a 0.2 mg per kg IM dose of morphine when pain levels were either 33% of the maximum, I've just been calling it a DIVA score, yep. and or greater than 25% of the maximum Glasgow composite score. Mm -hmm. um, and then once time T6 was completed, all of the pets um, enrolled in the study received meloxicam, dipyrone, which I thought was an interesting choice, and then tramadol, which I also thought was an interesting choice. Yeah. Um, and they all, all 24 of the patients received yeah. that. Um, so, so again, yeah, whether or not you like that, it's at least that was consistent amongst yes. the dogs, but they stopped. Um, that was more just to be like, hey, we didn't stop giving them pain meds. Like we, <laughs> we gave them something we think that would work. Um, but we, sure we didn't, it. yeah, they didn't continue to um, assess their, their pain levels after that though. Um, yeah. So they looked at that like six hour period after stopping the CRI before starting um, the, you know, longer term medications. And then they were able to give them rescue analgesia, which is pretty standard as well that, you know, you provide, you can't just let them suffer, right? Like there has to be a yeah. plan to give them. <laughs> now you had said something earlier that, um, you know, this was, blinded or one of the researchers was blinded what's your thoughts on the blinding in this in this study if from what I could tell from how at least the paper was written it seems like it was just one individual yeah and so like it was sort of partially a little bit blinded yes and the only I knowing that they're using four 
pain scales Mm -hmm. for 24 dogs at specific time points. And Mm -hmm. even just looking, taking a closer look at the Glasgow's in particular, it just seems like a lot of work for one person to do and to get it done in the appropriate time frame that it needs to be done for 24 patients. Well, those could have been spread out over months though, right? The 24 patients. That's a good point. I guess it could have been like one a day. Yes, I think I'm really, I'm thinking, <laughs> you're totally right. I'm, I think I'm thinking of my own personal experiences with research where yeah. it's not a prospective study like this. Yeah, no. So you were waiting around like we, when basically they probably enrolled these dogs just on a rolling basis. That like we had a, a patient, yeah, we had a patient that has memory under carcinoma <laughs> or presumed we're going to schedule it for this, enroll them into this study. But it is still a lot of work, right? Like mm-hmm. if each hour you're doing four different pain scales, yeah. you're almost like done with your pain scales. It's time to start it again. Mm-hmm. Um, so that is a fair point. Did they comment on, did they, always do those pain scores in the same order? Did they change the order? Did that make a difference? There weren't a lot of specifics applied about how these pain scales were actually applied to the patients and then interpreted. Um, And so a lot of what I learned from Glasgow's, I just did secondary research looking into. um, And, you know, I I don't know if I can jump into results now. Yeah, do it. Um, Because one of my personal beefs with the the report (laughs) is you know, they noted in their results section that there were significant differences in pain between the groups after surgery using MGCSSF, which I don't think that the acronym worm. Yeah. Yes, I don't the, think that acronym was introduced earlier. So I no, I think that's that. the modified okay. um, composite, pain, but I, or it was just an error. Got um, it. I, I'm, I wasn't sure. Cause I noticed that too. I was like, wait, are you using the modified one? That's not what you said you'd <laughs> use before. So I'm wondering if that wasn't just like a typo, um, but I'm not sure. And so they noted that the group that received the meropatin had lower pain scores. The P uh, value was less than 0.01. But there's no other mention of what the results of the other three pain right? scores were. Good. Yeah, I'm glad you caught that because that was also like, but what about the other ones? Yeah. And so and I it was, implies that they weren't different. Yes. And so I... Yeah, I thought that was an interest, a pretty big point to to leave out. And none of the, the tables or the figures have those values no. represented. And so... I'm wondering if those results perhaps contraindicated the results of what they have yeah. here for the modified Which they have told us about. So I just thought it was <laughs> I thought it was odd to mention yeah. that they were using four pain scales, but then right. make just no don't tell us you use the other one at that point, after. right? Just yeah, just be like, well, we use this one. Um, but the fact that they were like, we did four different pain scales, but we're not going to tell you about it <laughs> exactly because um, that's one yeah. of the main points that they use to say that yes, meropatin does have analgesic effects for mastectomies. And so um, I was certainly curious and would love to see what those other three results look like. Now you could say, well, which of those pain scales is the best? Yeah. Yeah, I was going to ask that. I was going to be like, (laughs) because I was going to say, what's the big difference? Because I know you printed off and looked up the Glasgow pain scale. What is the difference between a 4.25 and a 5.25? Like, is that a really big difference or is that like kind of like negligible? If I'm yeah, negligible, that's a word. Yeah, yeah it is. Yeah, yeah. 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 You, used, you used it appropriately too. <laughs> <laughs> well, so that's, that's a, okay. So we're going to get into it. Here you go. You guys ready? All right. So these are also categorical scales, right? And when you talk about these, um, I think if you look at figure, f- no, which figure is it? Um, when you, when you, oh, here it is. Figure uh, one. Um, figure one, so you've got these um, scales, and you, if you look at uh, the axes on figure one, so you have T1 um, through T6, and then um, you have 3.5 to 4 to 4.5 to 5, 5.5. Um, you have the different scores, and it looks like they averaged them, right? The scores mm-hmm. between the different dogs. Yep. Here's the problem with that. This is categorical ordinal data, and that is assuming that the difference between a four and a five is the same in magnitude as the difference between a five and a six or between a three and a four. And they're not. These are categories. Like I'm assigning a score of a four. And like it, you, you really can't do that. So when you start averaging categorical ordinal data, it's a little tricky on how you interpret that. So if you get a, a 3.3 and somebody else gets a 4.7, you're saying, oh, that's a difference of 1.5. But what does that mean? It's kind of meaningless. So, so that's problematic whenever using categorical data. It's hard to do math on categorical data, right? Mm-hmm. Um, because these are, it'd be like saying, all right, um, we have red, green, yellow, and blue, and I'm going to average those colors together. And you're like, well, everything's brown now. Yeah, because when you mix all those colors, <laughs> that's what you get. But you're averaging things that aren't 
numerical, right? We took words and descriptors for pain and gave them a numerical scale. And we do recognize, and when I say ordinal, meaning there's an order, right? Um, we It wasn't like we labeled them A, B, C, D, E, and that doesn't really matter. We're saying one is less painful than a two, which is less painful than a three. But we are saying this one's higher than that, but we can't say that this one is this amount higher than that right? Does that make sense what yeah. I'm saying? Yeah. Um, and so that becomes really problematic when you try to do these types of numbers. And then the other thing you brought up, Haley, which I'm really glad you did was like, what about the other pain scales? So you could, we could all decide, well, I like this pain scale better. And so I'm going to use that. Well then just use that for your study. But since you used all four, tell us what you found. Like just tell, you know, was it, and it's okay. It doesn't mean that your, your study is useless and we're going to throw it out. And we're not going to listen to you. But, um, but the fact that you didn't report it makes me like, and it could have just been, it was, you know, we didn't find statistically significant differences. Now, some of them, um, it's hard to say, um, you know, what, how, how would you do the numbers? And and this is where the, the statistics um, become dicey and you'll get some disagreement. Um, how do you do the statistics for categorical ordinal data? Um, the, the first one was just a descriptor, like, okay, but did you find them to be more or less painful? Can you just give me some sense for, um, you know, more of the dogs were described to be, you know, in, uh, you know, significant pain or more of the dogs in the diva scale was this, or it was more helpful when they looked at the rescue analgesia. I don't know if you looked at that, like how often they had to give the rescue analgesia. That was probably more helpful information than I would say the results of the, um, the, uh, composite, uh, Glasgow composite pain scale. Mm -hmm. Um, but it just, it gets tough doing these types of things. Um, I did have a question actually about related to the rescue analgesia mm -hmm. specific um, figure two specifically because mm -hmm. they noted from their results section that there was a significant difference between or there was a significant between group difference in the survival curves for the number of rescue rescue analgesia interventions required after surgery and the meropitant group had a better survival curve than the non-meropitant group and so when I look at that figure mm -hmm. figure two it's patients without analgesic rescues mm -hmm. and we see that the with serenia group had less patients needing analgesic rescues mm -hmm. but it's a percent and so yeah. for me when i was remembering that it's there's weird. 12 patients in each of these mm -hmm. you know it might look like a drastic difference but i think numbers wise it yeah. breaks down to a difference of maybe two or three patients yeah no it's a really good point and it's a it's again it's kind of a weird way normally what you do so this looks like a kaplan meyer curve and usually those are it's a, and they refer to it as a survival curve and so usually what those are is if you're doing survivability studies and you have two groups and basically every time that line goes down, that's a patient that you lost. That's a patient that died, right? In this case, it's not a patient that died. It's um, an animal that received rescue analgesia. Got but it. again, they, they listed that as the percentage. So what percentage of the animals? So at um, the first hour, 100% of the animals were still in, right? They hadn't, mm -hmm. they hadn't needed rescue analgesia. And then um, basically when they jumped down, that's, we lost a patient, we lost a patient. And you notice they always go down in a step if you look at figure two. So every time they go down, that's one patient. So it looks like at the one hour mark, um, one patient in the Serenia group needed rescue analgesia and two patients in the control group needed rescue analgesia. Got it. Um, and then you kind of so on and so forth as you go down. So, I mean, I think this is actually, I would argue, a better way of looking at the information. Mm -hmm. Now, d deciding whether or not that's statistically significant, that's where it gets a little bit dicey. I think that's what you were saying is, um, is that, is that really? Um, and you, you could, one of my beefs with this one is the, the description of was this blinded or not? Mm -hmm. um, because we had one mention in the paper at one point that somebody didn't know who was getting what, but these animals are getting infusions in the hospital. And I feel like it'd be pretty easy to be like, oh, that one's getting this one. You know, they didn't, they didn't go through and say this was specifically blinded and that the, the people managing these patients didn't know who got what. Mm -hmm. So there's the, the, there's the risk of bias there. If these people like, Serenia is great. These animals don't need it. They're on Serenia. They're, it's fine. Mm -hmm. We don't, I don't know. It could have been the other way around that people who uh, were more likely to give um, pain meds if, um, if they knew it was on Serenia, but I feel like that's less likely. Um, so yeah, it, it's a little hard to say. So I agree. Um, you know, how much do we take away from this? Um, given, you know, some of the flaws, I think overall, this was a, a well-designed study. I think they did a good job. There are obviously some flaws. There are flaws in every study. Anybody who's mm -hmm. ever done research is like, it's not perfect. It's hard. Um, but I think overall they, they did a really good job. There were a few, um, you know, decisions made in the publication that I would probably, you know, ha take issue with. I will 
qualify this, that that sometimes isn't the author's fault. <laughs> sometimes you get the reviewers and the editors that come through and be like, oh, this is confusing, cut this or do this. And you're yeah. like, well, uh, and then you end up publishing something and people are like, well, that was really weird. Why'd they do that? And you're like, they made us do it. Um, <laughs> I don't know if that's the case here. I have no idea. Um, but you always have to keep that um, in the back of your mind when you're like the format or why didn't they include this? Or um, all, f the, the flip side of that is why didn't the reviewers ask for the results of those other things? So yeah. I, it's not clear. Um, sometimes you can provide that in like an appendix. You're like, wow, this is getting a little unwieldy. Um, and so it can be provided elsewhere. But um, it, it it's, it's not really clear why they didn't include that. Um, I agree. So here's my question for both of you. Given both of these articles that you've read, um, two out of hundreds, but you've read these two articles, what are your thoughts on using Serenia for analgesia, for anti-inflammatory, or for um, anesthetic purposes? This could be me being totally, just like totally out the wrong thing. But like when Haley was explaining her article, it kind of made me think of how it proves the point of what my review article found okay. that like during anesthesia, they needed less rescues. Like it was better. Like the Mac was lower. Like I didn't know if that could be connected. So I feel as if in my personal use of my limited time, <laughs> which is uh, three years rising, uh, <laughs> that's right. Um, is that it would be good to use to decrease anesthetic use, but I wouldn't necessarily use it based on this one study to oh, like for post-operatively. Yeah, yeah, I wouldn't. Yeah. But okay. I don't know if that could be connected, like the lower yeah. MAC and then the lower rescues. I don't know. Yeah. Cause it was only for like six hours after stopping the CRI. So maybe, maybe yeah. the same effect was going on. Yeah. I like that thought. All right, Haley, what's your thoughts? So my thoughts are certainly continue to use it as an anti-emetic. Yes. And <laughs> you know, it's a given, yeah. I think <laughs> yeah. giving it pre-op has the added benefit then of, you have a patient now who maybe you can have less inhalant anesthetic yep. that you have to deliver and that's great. Would I reach for it as an analgesic or anti-inflammatory? I'm still not convinced based on this prospective study. I think there's a lot more that needs to be done. And yeah, I'm just, I'm still not, not convinced that yeah. we can rely on it for, you know, as an analgesic. Yeah. No, I like that. I think that's really good. You know, using it as a, a pre-anesthetic is part of your pre-anesthetic. makes a lot of sense because one, if it can reduce vomiting, which we know a lot of our, um, you know, pre-meds can induce. And so if it can reduce that, cool. And then if it has the added benefit of reducing MAC during the procedure, awesome. Um, and then, but jury's still out. We need a little bit more. Mm -hmm. So no, nothing about the study you went over, Haley, even look, they didn't even ask about anti-inflammatory. They didn't try to claim that it was anti-inflammatory. So that wasn't even addressed in that article. Um, and they also didn't incidentally look at MAC during the procedure. Mm -hmm. um, so those two questions that were covered in the review were not addressed in this. This one yep. was really just focusing on the analgesic effects yep. of which, you know, modest, you know, okay. And, and that is, I think you're right in line with what the reviewers found in their, in their review article. Like occasionally there would be some articles that would be like, yeah, it seems to have a benefit, but they're like, mm, overall, it's just, it's not super powerful is not going to be replacing our other analgesic drugs right now. Yeah. Um, in the future, we get more information. We learn how to use it properly. Maybe dosing needs to be changed. Maybe we need to continue it while we check our pain scores um, and not stop it and then see what happens. I, I would be curious just, um, you know, to go back and try something like that. Um, the other thing that was interesting, I think, about this prospective study is that they went with like, like a kind of aggressive study where most of the ones from the review were like space, right? Um, mm -hmm. oh, which yeah. not the space, uh, not to play that down, like that's a big major surgery, but we know that... Um, um, uh, mastectomies are quite painful. So you could also, you know, flip side, make the argument like in a really, really painful procedure, those dogs, you know, maybe did pretty well. So like, I, I think there's, there's definitely room to say, we still have to ask the question and, um, maybe three, five years from now, we're all going to be using Serenia in our post-op, yeah. um, you know, pain management plans. But I agree. I don't think I'm quite there yet that I'm going to start using it routinely, um, in the post-operative period, in the peri and pre-operative period. I think there's, um, a lot of good uh, reasons to use it both for, like you said, just its regular effects of, you know, preventing vomiting. And then if it can reduce Mac, which does seem to be a modest, but consistent effect um, across a number of studies. So um, I think I just have, cool. if I could just add two follow-up yeah. points. Yeah. Um, one of the things, because I, I do agree, mastectomy is a pretty painful procedure. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we definitely want the best analgesic protocol that we can provide to those animals. Um, I noticed that the other paper that the authors referenced for showing 
improvements in analgesia was an ovaria hysterectomy of a in a cat study uh-huh. and they found that cats experienced greater comfort during the post-op period because they also required a lower number of analgesic rescues. Mm-hmm. I looked into that paper and interestingly it was the same authors. Yeah. And so, um, you know, they definitely, That's always a tricky thing, right? To yeah. cite yourself. Yeah. So I think, you know, they do have a article. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They do have at least a reference to another paper that's looking at it for maybe a less painful procedure. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, I think some people could argue that maybe having the same authors doing it. Um, there might be some bias. Yeah. Maybe just a little bit. Yeah. But, you know, something I would be curious um, for follow up studies is because w- we learned during our, our uh, with Dr. Davis in our pharmacology course that Serenia's supposedly has um, benefits for visceral pain. Yeah, that's what people say. And so she talked about using it for um, at least for some of the studies for things like um, surgeries for pancreatitis or uh, gastrotomies. And so I would be curious of what maybe this would look like for those types of procedures. Yeah, it'd be it'd be interesting because, yeah. yeah, people say that all the time. And that's such a tricky thing. Visceral pain, like, uh, um, yeah, I'm, I'm unconvinced by that one as well. In fact, I'm pretty sure that is the question that got asked for me when I was like, wait, what are you guys talking about? And I started looking into this. Um, and, um, I mean, so after a spay, that is visceral pain, yeah. right? Like that's visceral pain more than like the mastectomy, yeah. right? So those are, so I would argue that the results of the review kind of refute the whole, you should use it for visceral pain argument because what we've got so far is that meh. Uh, probably, probably not so much. Um, now specifically in pancreatitis, here's the other thing. Here's what I'm just going to say. If Serenia has some analgesic properties, they are not profound. I feel like I can say that with confidence at that point. Like at best, you're going to get like, hey, maybe that helps a little bit. So if you have a really painful procedure like pancreatitis, please do not rely on Serenia as your analgesic plan. (laughs) Like stick with things like ketamine and opioids and EDS. Like we know that. Like Serenia might help a little bit in some of these cases, um, but it is not. I will say this and I, you know, if I'm wrong, you guys can come back and be like, you were super wrong about that. (laughs) But uh, it is not going to replace our powerful analgesics like that. and, And none of these studies are claiming that. Like nobody's like, oh, this can replace opioids like no nobody's claiming that um so if you think that it's like oh cool we can start using this instead of it's no we're just looking for like adjunctive things that might help you know let's reduce some substance p around here okay cool maybe this will do it um, again, I think, I think your guys' assessment at this point is, is very much in line with mine, which is like, Hey, that's promising. That's kind of interesting. Mm-hmm. Not going to rewrite my, my playbook just yet. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, we, we shall see. Yeah. I think uh, studies like this are definitely paving the way yeah, for maybe awesome. investigating more of Serenia's uses other than being an anti-emetic, but just like with all other drugs, once yeah. they're discovered and used, there's a lot more. Let's see what else? Let's turn it into this. Let's turn it into that. The good thing is it's a pretty safe drug. Yeah. Right. So that is, you know, if you're going to be using something, use something that seems to be pretty safe. Um, but nothing is a panacea. It's never, it's never going to be all the things you yeah. want it to be. <laughs> um, so very cool. Great job. Great job, you guys. You. Well job Thank preparing. Um, there, there were some tough articles. There was a lot to go over in all those, a lot of numbers, a lot of graphs, yeah. a lot to process. Um, but I think, uh, you know, this is just a really great example of when you have these questions that come up, like, all right, how am I going to answer this? Okay, let's go to literature and see what's out there. And it's not always obvious, right? Um, you know, if you just read these articles at face value, you might get a very different, um, you know, answer um, of what you're going to do. But um, research is also hard. That's the other thing to learn. Yeah. <laughs> research yeah. is hard. Anytime yeah, you read a research article, I think you get that. You're yeah, like, research like, this is, is hard. This is hard. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, shout out to the people who did the research in the articles from this week. Thank mm-hmm. you for the work that you have done. Um, you know, that is always, always much appreciated for the people, you know, who are contributing. And, um, you know, we'll, we'll keep reading them. It's good stuff. Always good stuff out there. And um, thank you, Haley and Brittany, so very much for being on the show this week and for preparing and sharing your thoughts. Um, really enjoyed having you. Thank, thank you. you. Yeah. Hopefully you guys will come back. Yes, yes. absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> all right. That is all I think we have for um, this week. Hang on. I got to get, get back to page one so I can. I think it's not working. All right, we might not have any outro music because I've broken my, my stuff here. All right, we're just going to play this music. This is the new outro because I <laughs> couldn't figure out how to get to the main I kind of like it, though. <laughs> yeah, it's, it fits. <laughs> all right, all right. Thank you guys so much. We'll catch you next time.